All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for our worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, I uh, would love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here. G- glad that you would join us this morning. Um, one of the best ways to get connected at River City, one of the best ways to get plugged in, like Becca was saying, is to get involved in a small group. Those meet uh, on Monday, or not on Monday, now they meet Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of the week. And and uh, this semester, we're actually going to be studying a bunch of the parables of Jesus. And one of the things I love about the parables that Jesus tells is that they are both incredibly accessible, but also just endlessly deep. And so if you have been following Jesus for a long time, or you're just figuring out what it means to follow him, um, you're going to get something out of our time in God's word in small groups this fall. And so I can't wait for you to be a part of that. And, and so, um, so I'd encourage you to get connected to a small group, fill out a connection card, or better yet, just Find somebody whose face you see on the screen, uh, and we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to get you plugged in with small groups. So a little sneak peek about small groups this fall. Also a little sneak peek about Sunday mornings this fall. Uh, we are just about to finish up our study in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. And then next, starting next week, we're going to be starting a series over the course of the fall, uh, working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And so if you know anything about Nehemiah, most people think that Nehemiah is a book about a guy who builds a wall. And if that was the case, it would be less than half as long as it really is. And so it's not really about a wall at all. It's really about much more about what it looks like for God's people to live for the glory of God in the city. And so can't wait to show you God's word as we walk through that Old Testament book. It's a whole different genre than we've been in for the last seven months here, but I can't wait to show you how good it is and what it looks like for us to be God's people who live for his glory in the city. And so uh, looking forward to that coming up. But like I said, this morning we are wrapping up our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. After seven months, we've just been walking our way through that book, one chapter at a time. And and uh, I don't know about you, but this book has been, I know it has seriously challenged and encouraged my own heart. I'm always amazed every week as I've studied, as we've walked our way verse by verse through this book, how even though this is a, a letter that is nearly 2,000 years old, written to a church on the halfway across the world 2,000 years ago, it is anything but outdated and irrelevant. It is so deeply practical and important for our lives today. And, and what we saw is that week after week, the, the issues that the Corinthian church was dealing with, the things that they were wrestling with, the problems that were happening in their church are really still the same things that we deal with today, right? They, they might look a little bit different on the outside, but at the core, they're, they're really the same things. You see, we might not be wrestling. You might not be asking the question this week about whether or not you should be eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple. If you are asking that question, we have different problems that we need to address, right? But you're probably not asking that question. But, but we should absolutely be asking the question about how the exercise of our own rights and freedoms might be impacting our fellow believers or might be undermining our witness to a watching world. And that's really what chapters 8 through 10 and all that stuff about meat sacrifice styles is really all about. And we might not be arguing about whether or not women should wear a head covering when they're up front on a Sunday, but we certainly do need to be intentionally thinking about what it looks like for men and women in response to the way that God's created and called us to equally and yet distinctly bear his image. We should be thinking intentionally about what it looks like for us to live and minister and relate to one another. 
And that's really what chapter 14 is all about. And so while the things on the surface might not be the exact issues you and I are wrestling with today, uh, underneath they're really just the same stuff. And so it's been so good for our hearts to, to walk through that. But it's not just the underlying issues themselves that we can relate to in this letter in 1 Corinthians. We saw how it's the source of those problems in the first place, right, that we have in common. We studied our way through the book. We saw how all the messed up ways that this Corinthian church was thinking and acting, how it stemmed from the fact that although they had believed the message of the gospel that Paul had come preaching to them, their lives and their community we're not being ongoingly formed and shaped by the person and the work of Jesus. See, instead of having their values and their priorities and their attitudes and their actions being shaped and formed by responding to who Jesus was and all that he had done for them and increasingly living lives that reflected him, what we see is that, that they were a church that was continually being shaped and formed by the culture around them. And they were in turn increasingly thinking and living just like everyone else around them did. And we saw how in Corinth what that meant is that your world revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders of the day or maintaining your place at the top of those ladders. And we saw how making a name for yourself and being seen as impressive and influential and important that those were the things that everyone valued the most and pursued the most, regardless of what they had to say or do to get it or who they had to use or abuse to achieve it. One commentator summed it up. He said, the, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. That doesn't sound anything like the world we live in, does it? Oh, it does, right? Yes, it does. And see, tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth was no exception you see, what's painfully clear as we've read chapter after chapter throughout the book is that their highest priority, their, their, the goal that was driving their lives, it wasn't God's glory. It wasn't the advancing of his kingdom in response to all that he'd done. It was their own glory and the pursuit of their own advancing of their own social status and standing in their world. That's what was driving everything they were doing, no matter the cost no matter how it was infecting their faith or how it was impacting the faith of others or how it was impacting their witness to a watching world, it didn't matter. And so throughout the letter, what we see Paul doing was confronting and correcting this utterly self-focused, Corinthian-formed mindset. He's He's confronting and correcting all the ways that the Corinthian church are living and thinking with themselves at the center and with the pursuit of their own identity and, and status and with the pursuit of being seen as important and influential and powerful with that stuff at the driving at the center. And he's confronting and correcting that. But what's so important and what I've tried to highlight for you each week, the, the big E on the eye chart throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians is not just how Paul confronts the stuff going on with these people, but but how he does it. You see, what you see is that throughout the letter, and what I want to keep coming back to this morning as we wrap up our time, is that Paul doesn't try to change this church. He doesn't try to get them to, to be, do away with sin and to look more like Jesus. He doesn't try to do that with guilt or shame or duty or obligation. He doesn't just tell them that they should know better and that they should just do better and try harder and just want it enough. And he doesn't just, as well, he doesn't just give them a more robust list of rules to follow to make sure they don't get close to breaking the rules that God's given them. 
No, instead what we see is that he confronts all the self-centered ways that this church is thinking and acting. What we see is that he keeps pointing them back to the person and the work of Jesus. As he keeps reminding them about the gospel and about all that Jesus has done for them because what Paul understands is that believing the gospel is not just the thing that saves you. It's not just the thing that makes you right with God. What Paul understands is that believing on the gospel and ongoingly believing the truths of the gospel, that's actually how you grow up spiritually. That's how you mature. That's how you do away with sin and start looking more like Jesus. It's how you change. So there is that. Some people think that, that the gospel is the thing that gets you in the front door. It's like the, the spiritual front door with Jesus, right? And after that, you kind of, the rest of the Christian life is just a whole lot of tips and tricks and do better, try harder, and just figure out how you can get inspired to really follow Jesus with everything you got. And the truth is, is that what we see throughout Scripture, what we've seen in our letter, this letter to 1 Corinthians, is that, is that 100% of your spiritual growth it comes from believing the truths of the gospel and repenting of the lies that we've been believing that are in contrast to it. By coming back to the person and the work of Jesus and applying the truth about who he is and all that he's done to every part of our lives and every area of the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we relate to one another. That's exactly what we've been seeing Paul do throughout this letter to the Corinthians. And that's what I want to remind us about as we close this book. I want to remind us about what it looks like for us to be a church that is growing in the gospel. It's the very first part of our vision. We talk about it every week. What I want to remind us is what that looks like for us as a church and how we've seen that happening in this book. Because the idea is that we don't want to just be a church that believes the truth about Jesus. We want to be a church that is ongoingly transformed by who he is and all he's done for us. So with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll dive back into 1 Corinthians one last time together. Jesus, uh, we're just grateful for you, and we're grateful for our time together this morning. We're thankful, Jesus, that you would give us your word and that you'd gather us together to study it. We're, we're just thankful for that. And two, this morning, Jesus, the reality is just that I don't have anything impressive to say uh, I don't have anything to say this morning that, that I haven't said a lot of times before, that we haven't studied every week as we've gathered through this book, Jesus, but I am also so deeply convinced that we need to hear it again. And so God, I just ask by your spirit that you would cause the good news about who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. Pray that you would cause it to be good news again to our hearts that it would captivate our hearts and our imaginations, Jesus, that, that all that you've done for us would be this compelling picture that transforms our lives. And the reality is, is that I don't have any power to make that true, only you do, God. And so as we study and as, as, as we remember the gospel together, as we look at this book, God, would you cause it to be good news to our hearts that shapes our lives? Only you can do it. And so we ask that you would for our good and for your glory, God. Amen. Amen. Well, um, 
As we walk through the letter of 1 Corinthians, what you, what you find, if you do the kind of the analysis on the book, what you see is that chapter 15, it's not the very last chapter, but it's almost at the end. And chapter 15 is the climax of the whole book. Kind of Everything's kind of leading to chapter 15. And, and what you see in chapter 15 is that what Paul's doing at the climax of the story, at the, the thing that he's trying to drive home as the thing that's most important, the thing that everything else hinges on, is the gospel. He, he writes it this way at the beginning of chapter 15. He says, verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. He's, he's writing to Christians already, people who already believe the gospel, already agree that Jesus is Lord and that by faith they're saved and rescued by him. He's writing them. He says, I want to remind you about that. He says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Verse 3 goes on to explain what that means. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see what Paul's doing, the thing that he is coming back to at the climax of the story, what he's summing up in verses three and four is this, the message that he came preaching to them when he started this church five years ago, five years prior to this letter. He's, he's summing up the message, the, the good news, the gospel, that, that although that the Corinthians, like us, have all rejected God as the true king and creator of the universe and enthroned ourselves as our little G-gods of our own worlds, and, and so we are justly deserving as his wrath, God didn't punish us, but instead he came himself in the person of Jesus to live the life that we were made to live and to die the death that our sinful rebellion deserves and to rise from the grave, conquering Satan and sin and death on our behalf in a way we never could so that anyone who puts their faith in him and surrenders to him as king and as Lord can be forgiven and cleansed and brought into a right and loving relationship with him. That's the, that's the message that Paul is summing up to this church, right? It's a message that has transformed their lives, it's transformed their eternities. And Paul says that this is the thing that is of first importance, that word there, that for first, it's not referring to beginning. It's referring to preeminence. Paul's saying, this isn't just the beginning thing of importance. He's saying, the gospel is the thing that there is nothing else more important than. It's the big E on the I chart. It is the thing that matters the most. And he's what he's doing is he's, he's saying that because like I mentioned earlier, the gospel, what Paul understands is that the gospel is not just how we're saved, but it's how we grow up spiritually. Again, he's, he's reminding people who already believe this about it. He goes on in, in chapter 15 to flesh out how faith in Jesus' death and his resurrection on their behalf, how it doesn't just change their eternal futures. He goes on to articulate how it changes their present reality. Right at the end of chapter 15, he writes to them, he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Because Jesus died on your, in for your sins on your behalf. Because he resurrected, overcoming Satan and sin and death. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. You see, the gospel is not just the beginning. It's the hub at the center of the wheel that everything else connects to. And so the question is, if that message is so important, right? If that message is so important, then why does he save it for the end of the book, right? He's like 15 chapters deep and he gets to the thing of first importance and you're like, dude, like, I feel like you got to flip that, man. Like the thing of first importance should be at the beginning, right? That, that's how it works, isn't it, right? But the truth is, is that Paul has been reminding them about the gospel in every one of the 15 chapters leading up to this one. That's what he's been doing over and over and over again as he confronts and corrects all the Corinthian-formed ways this church is thinking and acting. He's, he's connecting everything back to the person and the work of Jesus. He's been showing them how believing and responding to the truths of the gospel is the one thing that actually has the power to transform and motivate and empower lives lived for him instead of for themselves. Chapter one, we saw how he opened this letter to this church full of people who were desperately clamoring to make an identity for themselves and to climb the social ladder and to be seen by others as impressive and influential and important. He writes to them, he begins this letter by reminding them about the incredible, unrivaled identity and status they already have because of Jesus. He writes in verse two and three of chapter one, he says, he's writing this letter, he addresses them to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified by Jesus and are called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding this church desperate for an identity that they are already God's people. They are already his church, that they belong to the king and the creator of the universe, and that they belong to him not as his slaves or as his property, but as his children, as his family, right? Paul says that it's through our father that he greets them, that God's their father, right? There is no higher family name. There is no more impressive pedigree you could possibly have in Corinth than to be the children of the almighty king of the universe. So Paul says this incredible identity and status they have, it's all because of Jesus. Jesus sanctified them. He set them apart. He called them to be his holy people. It's not because of what they had done or didn't do. It's not because of how impressive or unimpressive they were. It was all because of Jesus. And they didn't earn this incredible identity and status they have, and they absolutely did not deserve it. And that's good news because what it means is that it's an identity and a status that they could not mess up. It's one they couldn't lose. It was so far superior, so high above anything they could ever attain or earn for themselves by climbing the social ladders in Corinth. And it wasn't fragile like those. It wasn't temporary. It wasn't fleeting. It wasn't, didn't need to be defended. It was secure and unchanging because it was given, not earned. See, and Paul opens his letter that way. Because what you see through the rest of that book is that this church is desperately looking everywhere besides Jesus for the identity that they think they want. 
We saw in chapters one through four how one of the ways that they're looking to make an identity for themselves is by attaching themselves to leaders, leaders in the church, right? And they're, and, uh, they're looking at leaders like Paul or Apollos or Peter, leaders in the, in the church in the day, and they're looking at them the same way the Corinthians looked at any other leader, that they were just influential patrons who you could kind of attach yourself to and climb the societal ranks by, by cheering for and, and approving of. And it was leading to all kinds of prideful divisions and infighting as people were hoping the candidate they were cheering for would rise the ranks the most. In response, Paul rhetorically asked them, chapter, verse, verse 13 of chapter one, he says, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in, in my name? He's, he's telling them, I am not important. And Apollos is not important. Jesus is the one who is important. He's the one who gives you an identity and a status. I don't have anything to offer you except him. He goes on in verse 26 to remind them. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise or influential or of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one would boast before him. He says it's because of Jesus that you are in right relationship with this God. And it's because of Jesus who has become for you the very wisdom of God. He's your righteousness. He's your holiness. He is your redemption. Paul says, if you're going to cling to somebody, don't make it me. I don't have anything to offer you. But Jesus is everything you need. He's the one who gives you an identity and a value and a worth. You're just fools without him. But he has given you and made you the very wisdom of God. He's the one who died for you. He is the one who makes you righteous and holy and redeems you. He's the one. I'm just a servant, Paul tells them. And what we see is that in chapter six that, is that they had forgotten this reality. They had forgotten who they were because of Jesus. And also they had forgotten who they were without him, right? We see in chapter six that they're suing each other in public court over trivial matters, stupid stuff. And they're trying to make sure that they get whatever they feel like they're owed from one another. That they have to fight for everything that they're owed and make sure that they're given what they're due. And in response, Paul challenges them by reminding them about their own sin and their own rebellion and how what they really deserve from God is to be cut off entirely from him. So what they really deserve from him is, is rejection. But instead, he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, instead when what you deserve was to be rejected, to be cut off, he says, instead, but you were washed. And you were sanctified and you were justified. You were made right with God because of Jesus and by his spirit. He's telling this church, God did not give you what you deserve. He did not give you what you are rightly owed. Instead, he gave you his love and grace. And you did not deserve it, and you absolutely have not earned it. And what you owe him is, what he owes you is rejection. And when you see that God has treated you not as you deserve, when he has not given you what you were really owed, 
but instead giving you his grace and mercy, what happens is you start to treat other people that way. Instead of needing to demand what you feel like you are owed from others, you become someone who is full of grace and compassion because what you see is that that's how Jesus has treated you. Chapters 5 and 6 and 7, Paul goes on to confront all the selfish and immoral ways the Corinthians are acting sexually. We see in Corinth, like our own culture, that it was known for rampant sexual immorality and for confusion and deception. The, the cultural ethos in Corinth when it came to sex was do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, for whatever reason you want to. In fact, in Corinth, it wasn't just your right to, in do, to approach sex however you wanted. It was your duty and that you were missing out if you didn't approach that and if you didn't use sex to gratify you in whatever ways you thought were right. Paul writes to this church and he says, that's not freedom. That's just slavery to yourself. That's just slavery to your urges and your desires. And he writes to them in, in response in chapter six, the second half of it. In verse 13, he writes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, he says, verse 18, so therefore flee, run from it. For don't you know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you perceive from God? He says, you are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. He says, therefore, honor God. Glorify him with your bodies and in your bodies. You see, Paul roots this call to sexual purity and fidelity, not in do better and try harder, not in just follow the rules. He roots it instead in the fact that Jesus paid the price to set you free from slavery to sin. And he did that when you didn't even know him. Paul says you were slaves to sin, blind to the reality of your slavery. And when that was still true, Jesus died in your, on your behalf. He paid the penalty so that you might be set free. So don't live for yourself. You don't live no longer. You live no longer to gratify yourself, but to glorify him. Not just with your mind or your heart with your body as well, he says. It's all about Jesus. Paul echoes this reality in chapters 8 through 10 when he confronts how the Corinthian believers are selfishly exercising their own rights and freedoms without thinking about the ways that they're actually harming the faith of younger believers or the ways that they're undermining the, the actions that they are doing are undermining their witness to a watching world. And, and in contrast, Paul calls them to follow his example as he's following the very example of Jesus. And he, he writes to them at the end of chapter 10, he says, so instead of doing everything for yourself and for whatever pleases you he says verse 31 so whatever you treat or drink whatever you do do it all for the glory of God and don't cause anyone to stumble whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God for even as I try to please everyone in every way for I am not seeking my own good but the good of many so that they might be saved See, Paul's writing to this church right he says following Jesus changes how you relate to others. Not just the way you relate to God. 
And instead of thinking first and foremost about yourself, responding to the person and the work of Jesus, the example that he sets for us, it means that instead of thinking about ourselves first and looking to satisfy ourselves and to exercise our own rights and freedoms for our own good, what the gospel does is it gives us this picture and example and it calls us to be a people who are willing and even glad to set aside and to lay down our own rights and our own freedom so that people might encounter Jesus and grow up in their faith in him, whatever that might cost. Paul writes to this church and he says, the only way you start living like that, the only way you are gladly willing to lay down your rights and your freedoms for the good of others is when you see that that's what Jesus has done for you. The great king of the creator of the universe did not come to be, to demand his rights to demand to be worshipped, but we see in, in Philippians that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself a servant. And it's when you see how Jesus willingly, gladly gave up his rights so that you might know him. What happens is that you start to be willing and glad to give up your own so that others might know him as well. And you start thinking about the good of others instead of just yourself. Chapter 11, Paul roots the way that men and women are created and called by God to relate to one another in the church and in marriage. He roots that in the example that Jesus sets about him living as the loving head who sacrificially serves his bride, the church. And he as well writes about how Jesus also sets the example of the one who humbly submits to the Father and honors him in whatever ways needed. And chapter 12, Paul confronts their prideful, self-focused use of their spiritual gifts by reminding them that their gifts are not about them, but that they are in fact, the body of Christ. In chapter 13, he heralds the supremacy of sacrificial love by painting a picture of Jesus' selfless love for them. Every chapter, over and over and over and over again, what Paul does is he reminds this selfish, self-centered, Corinthian-formed church about the selfless love of Jesus for them. Because what Paul realizes, what he gets is that the gospel is not just the thing that saves you. The gospel is the one thing that has the power to motivate and transform you each and every day. And so Paul doesn't just add a list of do's and don'ts. He doesn't just tell them to do better and try harder. He doesn't give them duty and obligation and shame and guilt. He gives them Jesus. He reminds them about all that Jesus has done for them. How he's given them an identity and a status they could never earn for themselves. How he's paid a price to set them free from slavery to sin. How he's given them an identity no leader could help them get. How he's forgiven them and washed them and made them clean. Not given them what they were due, but given them grace instead. We see how he's modeled for them what it looks like to love and serve others. And Paul keeps coming back to Jesus. Because what Paul understands is that the one thing that captivates and transforms our hearts is not duty and obligation, but is a superior love. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, you cannot change by merely changing your thinking 
or through some great act of will, but rather by changing what you love the most. Change happens not only by giving our mind to new truths, though it does involve that, and by also feeding our imagination new beauties so that you love Jesus supremely. He says we change when we change what we worship the most. And how do we do that? We do that by seeing that Jesus' own heart was crushed and broken as he died on the cross for us. And it's as we worship a crucified Savior that our hearts are transformed. Tim Keller is talking about there, what Paul is getting at. The the old Puritan preacher, Thomas Chalmers, he called it the expulsive power of a new affection. In the 1800s, he wrote this famous sermon and he summed it up this way. He says, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, then it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. You see what Paul's saying and what Tim Keller was saying and what Thomas Chalmers are, what they're all repeating, what they're all reiterating is the fact that the one thing that changes you is being captivated by the beauty of the person and the work of Jesus. And when he becomes the thing that you love most, when he is the treasure worth selling everything to have, when he is the thing that gives you the identity you are looking for, when, he's the, when you realize that he is what you are after and you love him most, what happens is that you will stop loving and pursuing and giving yourself towards getting all the other things you think will satisfy. And instead you will be consumed by giving yourself over to him by living a life that increasingly reflects him and is dedicated to glorifying him. That's how you grow. That's not just how you become a Christian. That's how you grow up in your faith is by being captivated continually by Jesus and by seeing how all that he has done on your behalf for you connects and applies to every part of your life and every way that you think and all that you feel and how you relate to one another and all of it. See what Paul longs for this Corinthian church to be characterized by is to be not just a church that believes that Jesus has saved them, but a church who is ongoingly, every day, being increasingly transformed by that incredible reality. Church, that's my heart for you. That's what I want for this community at River City. I want us to be a people who are increasingly captivated by Jesus and all that he has done. A a people who learn how to connect the dots between the things going on in our lives and the truths about the gospel. People who don't get tired of repenting of our sin and asking Jesus to remind us how what he's done for us gives us new life and new hope and new motivations and new power. And I want us to be a people who never get tired of hearing about him and who never get tired of, of proclaiming him and never get tired of remembering him. Because he's the one who changes us. And if we ever get tired of him, then we just call it quits. (laughs) So the invitation, as Paul closes his letter to this church, 
is to remember Jesus. It's been his invitation on every page. And it's my invitation to you as well, church. Might we be a people who are always asking God to remind us of him and all that he has done so that we might be a people who increasingly reflect him into our world. You see, in what we're doing every week when we're taking communion together is we're remembering the gospel, remembering what Paul told us he wanted to remind us about, remembering Jesus' death on our behalf, which sets us free from slavery to sin and gives us new hope and new motivations and new power to live for him. In communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him, but instead communion is a chance for us to remember to remind ourselves about who he is and all that he's done and how much we did not deserve it because we forget all the time. And we take for granted all that Jesus has done for us and we live lives focused on ourselves rather than in response to his great sacrificial love for us. And so every week we gather, we remember him. And we do that so that we might be a people who never get tired of rejoicing in all that he's done for us. And so that we live lives that are given totally over to him out of joy. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning as we close our service, I want to encourage you, if if you have trusted Jesus to be your savior, if he is the one, if you have put your faith in his death for your sins to pay the penalty for you and you've put your hope in his resurrection to be the pattern for your own eternal resurrection one day with Jesus, then go back and take communion and do it as a remembrance and as a celebration of him. If you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is or what it means to follow him and if that's even something you are interested in doing, I just want you to know how welcome you are here and how welcome your questions are and how welcome your doubts are. This church, like we want to be a people who get to proclaim Jesus with our words and with our lives. And so I'm so glad that you are here. But I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after rituals. He's not after religious motions. What he's after is a heart that has surrendered to him and trusted him in faith. And so if you do that this morning, if you surrender to Jesus in faith and trust him to be the one who pays the penalty for your sins and then go back during our time of worship and and take communion, do it in joy. But but what you need most is him. And so as we sing and remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Be honest with him about what's going on in your own heart. Ask him to make the gospel good news to you that it really is. Maybe it's become old information stale news. Ask him to cause it to be the good news it really is. Good news that transforms your heart, that motivates and empowers you to no longer live for yourself, but to live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we don't love you because we're impressive or because we figured you out. Jesus, we love you because you loved us first. And when we were your enemies, Jesus, you came for us and died. When we were rebels against you, committing mutinous rebellion against you, Jesus, you paid the price to set us free from our own willing slavery to sin. Jesus, thank you that you gave everything for us. 
We ask, Jesus, that you would remind us of those realities every day so that we would be captivated by you, that we would be full of gratitude and thankfulness and awe and wonder for you, Jesus, that lives us to lead lives which are given wholly over to you. We can't do that without you. By your spirit, cause it to be true in our hearts each day. We pray, amen.